and welcome back to Cause Internal Monologue. In this episode, we're going to be discussing Tower Swallows Chapter 9. So this is the Yennefer chapter, picking up from the thread of, you know, her teleporting and uh, from from the from the launch meeting to Triss coming to Skellige, finding out that, you know, she's presumed dead. Uh, that was a big cliffhanger a few chapters ago. That was like the big thing. And so now the most of this chapter flashes from flashbacks with Croc and Gen, then Triss with Croc investigating, and we go back and forth. A little bit of Siri and Visigoda to fill in some world, most minor world-building stuff as well as uh, continue a mystery that we will get an answer to very soon. This is a very interesting chapter. It's a much slower paced, uh, no major politics like last time, no major adventuring shenanigans, no major depressing stuff with Siri. This is a Yennefer on a mission. She is confronted, basically, with herself and her wants, her desires, and her love for Siri, and has to confirm that in front of a literal god. Um, this is the, Yen has very much progressed from the sort of success that we saw in Last Wish, this very, um, you know, uh, assertive uh, and very, uh, go get em attitude, but also inherently selfish in many ways, and very, very much looking at everything like, you know, as she was taught, because she is a sorceress, and sorceresses are taught to act this way, of someone who is, um, you know, looking for an advantage, always looking for the way to get the most out of things. And she used Geralt, and uh, and was after the gen for, uh, you know, personal reasons. And then, uh, we're here... You know, she's gone through a lot of growth, basically become, uh, you know, Siri's mom, adoptive mother, become a much more softer person after having experienced great loss in terms of Geralt and the entire events of Shroud of Ice. And then, with everything at Thanage, she's really kind of become less concerned with everything. You know, when she had Siri, her, her, you know, she loved her and she cared for her and she uh, became her mother in many ways. But her first thought was to take her to Eratusa in hopes of um, getting her trained, keeping her safe, and the potentialness of what this kind of person, this source, you know, means for the greater realm of magic and politics and stuff like that now she's completely divorced from all of that she has no interest in it she basically tells the lodge to go fuck themselves and it basically is she's a one-woman army right now she is out to get her daughter back screw everyone else screw politics screw the lodge screw eratusa screw everyone screw nilfgaard screw the north who the hell cares anymore Geralt and Ciri the only thing that matters. You know, that reputation that has sort of surrounded her and is coming back to bind her. Basically, you know, uh, the Lodge uh, sees it as useful, and so does Dijkstra and a few others, of the fact that Yen is perceived as a traitor. That she is was part of the coup and was one of the instigators. She wasn't, of course, as we, the reader, know. Um, but 
most people see her that way. Um, they, you know, uh, as it is, last chapter, you know, Dijkstra was given information that she was innocent and he had no interest in releasing it because it was advantageous for her to remain a traitor at this time. And then here, you know, she you know, she's in Skellige, she's trying to get some things going, and she's having to deal with Croc. Croc on Crate has a past history uh, with her, and with Geralt, um, and with Ciri. Uh, I think it's funny, a very minor character, but all three of them have different connections to him uh, in cute little ways. You know, they were previous lovers a long time ago. And, of course, he was present at the banquet in question of price. He was there when Geralt called, uh, you know, the law of surprise. And uh, because, you know, uh, Skellige was connected uh, and, uh, you know, he was related to uh, East Tersic, you know, that uh, Sintra and Skellige had this bond, had this alliance. And so Ciri spent a lot of time here uh, in Skellige, um, and so he grew very fond of her. So he has connections to the, our big trio. And, you know, Sintra basically, because East was an important figure, um, and the, the alliance was advantageous, Skellige has pretty much been very anti-Nilfgaard before even the first war started, and after, you know, during the second wars were currently going on, they're very anti-Nilfgaard. So they, they're they very Scandinavian-influenced, uh, you know. There's a bit of world-building with uh, Skellige that we haven't had before, um, you know, with their, with their perception of Ragnarok or Ragnarok and Heimdall. It's all very... Um, Norse, which of course is, you know, part of the thing is that, uh, as I talked about last episode with the good book being potentially being the Bible, you know, how much of this is been perverted and changed over years after the conjunction and the, the merging of cultures, you know, what, what remains and what doesn't and what has been changed for the in service of the new culture. Uh, they don't call it Ragnarok, they call it Ragnarok. You know, small little itty-bitty inconsequential details that no one would really notice, uh, but it is that kind of thing. And they're, you know, doing raids on Nilfgaard and all this stuff, and they've, they've sworn vengeance against them. Um, and so when Yen shows up, they're hostile because she's a fucking traitor, right? Uh, but Krak has a past with her, and so he's willing to heal her out, hears about the stuff that's going on, and goes, okay, I can help you out, but I can only help you out so far, you know, and I, I do like how Sapkowski makes a joke about, th there's an old classic trope in a lot of fiction, it happens in every kind of genre, really, if you have, like, this major, like, central bad guy, right, and one of our main heroes goes, I got some allies who can call in. And they, they go in and they, and that naturally, you know, you will have my axe to quote Lord of the Lordings. But even though, you know, it, it goes beyond that and in other places as well. What's really funny here is that Kronk goes, I just don't have the ability to do that. And, and Yen goes, that's not what I was asking for. I was asking for money. Uh, and I think that's a really cute uh, Sokowski joke. Once again, taking those classic tropes and putting them in and then saying, ain't that a little bit stupid? Let's move on, right? Everything with the Freya bit 
is, I think, the, the heart of this chapter. Yen is faced with issue, with an issue here. She needs, basically, in order to get what she needs to get done, she needs to, she needs to contact a bunch of people. You know, and there's only so so much she can rely on the fact of, you know, the time between delivery and stuff like that. How, you know, a few books ago we saw the problem of the couriers and how that can uh, go badly with poor Abigat. So, here we have her going, okay, I need to assemble a megascope. And someone, again, Sivkowski makes that joke, why don't you just pull out a, you know, a, a, a you know, crystal ball? And she's like, crystal balls have to be augmented and, and sort of tuned to one particular item. I need something that's more long-range, more all-purpose. Um, uh, a nice little joke. Uh, but also, you know, she can't get a hold of this diamond in any way because it's just, you know... Mages are so used to having everything at their beck and call. They're important politically on, and on a power scale level. They were the heroes of Sodden. Uh, you know, these were very big influential people, you know, going back centuries. And they have a very decadent culture because of that. And so when the, the shoes have come off, the gloves have come off, and there's now an increased hatred of mages after the events of Thanid and the fact that Yennefer is cut off from all conventional sources because she is viewed as a traitor means that she can't get hold of the diamond and the only one with the cut she needs is located on this statue um, to one of the Skelligan gods, Freya, who's a Norse god, the, the goddess of fertility, motherhood, all that and stuff. And she goes to, you know, the temple, and the temple's like, no, the sacred artifact, we're not going to give it to you, blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, Yen takes a gamble. There's a, there's a nice joke about how, uh, you know, it's not understood how priests um, connect to magic in this world because you know with mages it requires intense training um and um you know it's a very hard and difficult journey that takes a toll and with priests all they need to do is pray and meditate and isn't that a bit strange especially for someone like Yennefer who doesn't believe in gods or goddesses or whatever and uh, they're like, they're, and she makes uh, she makes the comment that priests keep it really close to the chest. If you remember, this is kind of echoing Shard of Ice, where uh, we find out magic is a lot easier than than it would most likely seem. Uh, but but mages sort of ensure the prestige of their profession through exotic ingredients and and. A lot of hoity-toity stuff just to make it seem like only certain people can become mages. When it's a bit more open than that. It's not everyone can be, but it's still, you know, not a super small number like the mages like to pretend it is. And so, it, you know, isn't that funny? You know, it's the pot calling the kettle black. But she takes a gamble to try and do this meditation thing. And this is where she gets confronted with Freya. Freya... The Norse slash Skelligan god, a goddess of motherhood and fertility. And she has to justify why she wants her diamond to this goddess. And what's lovely here is it's all about 
how much Yin has grown, how she is a different person than we met in The Last Wish, and how much Siri means to her. And it's a very, very nice and organic way to give, uh, you know, backstory for something that is important to the central character. We don't need to spend ages and ages with a character learning how they get from point A to point B if point B is the start of the story. Uh, yes, this is directly targeted towards Netflix because this is an episode being recorded after the fact that, uh, you know, Henry Cavill has left the show. It's being replaced by Liam Hemsworth and basically the Netflix show um, is a sinking ship that hopefully will die in a horrible deluge of fire and I never have to think about it again because it is an abomination. One of the greatest flaws the first season had was giving Yin an unnecessarily backstory. What was the point of it? There is no reason for it. The backstory we get slowly over conversations, over small insights in these books is all we need. You know, we don't have a backstory for Geralt either. And if you notice, the Netflix show didn't bother to give him a backstory, so why Yin? Why was Yin required to have a backstory when it's not even important to her character? And I think that is really, really telling of the problems with modern-day storytelling and how this contradicts that in the fact that, you know, it, it's a non-Western literature, started in the 80s, ended in the 90s. This is a story told from a very different pace, from a very different perspective than the American modern 2010s, 2020s mindset. And um, that... That really shows in this, in the fact that we get small snippets of her history, and her history isn't directly spelled out word for word for word to us. We don't need it. All we need to know is her dad was a dick, her mother took out her frustration with her dad on her, and so both her parents were complete and other assholes. You know, she was a hunchback. She was, you know, because she was part elven, she was considered a mongrel, something evil and, you know, all that jazz and classic racism. And then, you know, she ends up at Eratusa and she tries to take her own life. And eventually, you know, as Freya points out, you know, did you, was forgiveness important to you? Did you forgive them in the end? And she goes, yes, only after I had said in my revenge, which... Is an open-ended statement. What does that mean? You know, I interpreted that she killed her parents. You know, and she has now grown uh, from that, realized that a lot of her problems were not only societal, but also um, it was abusive uh, parents, but she was taken away from that. And instead of really trying to embrace that newness, she fell into a pit and she's been climbing out of that pit slowly but surely, and she's formed her own family to try and, you know, make amends, basically, to fix her own parents' mistakes, to be a better human being. And we get this in a paragraph. That says something a lot about the power of Sapkowski's storytelling compared to Netflix writers who have very little experience, or if they do, it's it's mostly CW shows aimed at a very, very low common denominator uh, teenage audience. And that right there, like, this is all we need to know. 
And we will find out more about her suicide attempt later. Again, this is all we need to know. The, you know, the, the, the hunchback stuff in Last Wish. The small, itty-bitty stuff that we found out in uh, Shard of Ice and Blood of Elves and all of this stuff. Uh, you know, Time of Contempt has a few small uh, moments as well. But this is the m most big one, the most major one. And it's only a paragraph. Because backstory is not character. Character is what you're introduced to. Backstory is, hence the term, backstory. Things that are not part of the story, but inform the character in the here and now. You, as a writer, have to ask yourself, how much of this backstory is important for the character? How much does the audience need to know? You, as the writer, can choose to write all this stuff out, but most of the time your readers or any other audience will not see it because it's not necessary. Seeing a character go from point A to point B is only interesting if we have a, a, a sort of grasp on the character, an understanding of the character, um, and there's legitimate drama there. Uh, you know, I covered Babylon 5 before this, so I'll, I'll use an example. Marcus. Marcus Cole, introduced in Season 3 of Babylon 5, dies at the end of Season 4 of Babylon 5. He is a character that joined the Rangers, the, the Onless Shock, uh, this uh, very, uh, you know, important order to the story out of grief because his brother was a member and died uh, and f fulfilled a greater purpose, and so he wishes to pay his brother back by doing this. We under come to understand that this was a wrong decision on Marcus's behalf. He joined the Rangers for all the wrong reasons, and that gets him killed in the end, and he never properly let himself grieve his own brother. How much of this was shown on screen? We meet him as he's already joined the Rangers. We don't need to know the sob story of his brother dying. We're told that because that's all that's necessary to get the character to start moving on. And part of his character arc is not properly grieving and not properly doing this stuff. It's important as a writer to understand when something is necessary and when something is superfluous. And that is something that Sapkowski quite, quite nails here. Like, you know, again, we have no backstory of Geralt. Do we need one? No. How do we get Yen's age in here? We still don't know Geralt's age and the books are over, long over. We didn't need to know this information. All we need to know is that he's a vaguely old man. And, you know, this, you really get to stick up my craw about this because we live in a day and age where everybody's like, what's the backstory? What's the origin? Blah, blah, blah. And I'm not sure if it has something to do with the way stories have begun to be told in the past 20 years, but also the, the obsession with superhero fiction. And as a comic book reader, specifically of superheroes at both Marvel and DC, the obsession with origins in movies and adaptations really drives me nuts. I know I've stated this before, and I'll state it again. The question, my favorite superhero, Vic Sage, did not get an origin story until 20 years after his creation. He didn't need one. And so, we have here is all we need to know about Yen and the way she is, why she is, in one paragraph. One paragraph says more about Yennefer as a character than four entire episodes of the Netflix series. That says a lot.
Now, Freya basically asks Yen, what are you willing to sacrifice? How much are you willing to sacrifice? And over the course of their discussion, we come to understand that Freya sees her as worthy as a mother. She takes offense at her that the fact she doesn't believe. She makes a comment on how she uh, missed it with humans who were simple and said very little and only believed or only had faith. And, uh, you know, she comes to see that Yen will do anything. She will go and actively pursue a suicide mission, which she does at the end of this chapter, to save Siri. She will do anything for Siri. And nothing is too much. And it's the same for Geralt, uh, as I pointed out. And she even points that out. You know, she uses very similar verbiage. And she, she points out that, you know, Geralt will, uh, you know, will go and try and save him. But he'll get distracted and start philosophizing and and uh, all this stuff. And he won't have the focus. I have the focus and I'm also willing to go as far as he is. And so they're both on suicide missions. Geralt heading to Nilfgaard, where we know as the reader that Ciri is not there. And, uh, you know, Yen is looking for Ciri in the hopes that she's not in Nilfgaard because she's got the information about how the portal was activated at, at Torlara, the, the Tower of the Gulls. You know, they're both going in places that will most likely kill them. Because there's this, you know, uh, Nilfgaard self-explanatory, but also in uh, the Sedna Abyss, you know, th th this is uh, this is where one of the portals led, but also said that Abyss is sort of like the fantasy uh, Bermuda Triangle in the fact that ships go missing there, and and Kronk says about the the legend of the uh, uh, of the, the the children of Rhiannon uh, on the sea will mourn their passing, um, and what's funny is this has actual you know fact in in a way it's been interpreted much like you know the prophecy in general how uh freya quotes Ithlene's prophecy but in a slightly different wording um it's almost like this you know prophecies are a poor guide to the future to quote delin uh even uh, even yennefer when which points out the crog he's like oh they're bound by destiny and she goes destiny can be interpreted um that the sedna abyss has a magical whirlpool in it that magically made everybody disappear and the ship disappear. Only small fragments and the two bodies were found. And as Crack says at the end of the of the, the chapter, this wasn't an accident. Much like the same whirlpool that happened that took away Pavetta, supposedly, and Emir, supposedly, um, was not an accident as well. So, you know, you have all of this... This very emotional, very driven part of this chapter. And then we cut it with Triss, who is a conflict character. Uh, whereas Yennefer is incredibly driven uh, in this chapter and always has been, Triss is conflicted because she is of several minds. First of all, she feels like, you know, the aunt or the sister to uh, Ciri, so she has an obligation there. She loves Geralt. She cares for Yennefer as a friend, but she has loyalties to the Lodge, and she has political aspirations. And she believes in the Lodge's, you know, overall mission, and she's sleeping with Philippa Isleheart now. So, she's of several minds on this. And, uh, you know, she is playing the long game of she's concerned for Yen, but she also needs to know where Yen is in hopes of hopefully finding Ciri, 
uh, and all this stuff, and uh, Yin even confronts her on the megascope, you know, uh, of don't you dare use love, uh, you know, as a factor here. We know that it is, you know, much more complicated. Don't you dare. And she is a character who, because she's younger, because she is the way she is from uh, the political responsibilities to taking active role in the Thanet coup, to actively being a member of the Lodge, to, you know, loving Geralt and all this stuff, is we get the, the very clear difference of how Croc reacts to both of them. Yin, it's much more, you know, they have a past, but also he's slightly scared of her. Uh, and then with Triss, he treats her more like this very young, uh, adorable teenage girl, basically. And, you know, they find out stuff that's going on uh, with the Lodge, that the Lodge is making certain plans that are going to be difficult. We know that she, that, that Yen struck a deal with the Lodge that... Uh, basically, the devil, you know, you know, you gotta, you gotta strike a deal somewhere. That basically, don't smack the hand that feeds you. That in order to get the information she needs and gets the the resources she needs, she has to work with the lodge. And so she struck a deal with them, a deal that they both deny each other. Basically, she's like, clear my name. The Philippus says no. Clear my name to Geralt. Philippus says no. Uh, it says okay, leave me. Uh, the launch says, okay, leave leave us a bright come of information. He goes, I will if you, you know, uh, ensure Geralt's safety. And uh, basically they're, they're in, you know, they're in a spot where basically they don't want to give each other anything. Yen solely separate from the lodge, and the lodge is solely separate from her. But they both want the same thing, but they want, the, uh, want Siri for two different reasons. And at this point, Yen... You're stuck between a rug and a hard place. Do you, you know, make a deal with the devil knowing it's going to bite you in the back? Or do you not, knowing that your child may die? And so that's what Yen's at at the moment. And she strikes the deal, and we'll see the repercussions of that deal go, you know, uh, especially in the next book. Now, there are some spoiler stuff I could get into, but it will, because it will be coming to focus, especially uh, in the in the coming final two chapters of this book, I'll just hold off to talk about them then. Um, I do want to talk about the major translation issue. During a conversation with Karak on Great, Yennefer talks to him about Ciri, um, you know, staying here, how they grew to care for her, and how she whooped uh, Halmar's butt, you know, Croc's son, uh, on ice skates. In this conversation, there's this talk about how they basically promised each other they would be betrothed, but it was like young crush love, and it wasn't anything serious. And Halmar has used this to go on repeated raids and to really, um, you know, strike down Nilfgaard. And Ciri, you know, was an inconsequential thing, as well as the fact that uh, Calanthe had other plans for her. This is the translation issue, is that Croc says that Halmar was 15, Ciri almost 15. She just turned 16 in this book, and this was years ago retrospectively looking upon this stuff and because of the entire uh, the, the talk about that it, it, she was planning to be married off to Tinkred or that fool from Redani or whatever it implies this was slightly before maybe slightly after Sword of Destiny and because of that she was nine um and 
any translation other than the official English translation gets the gets the age correct. Um, you know that they usually put our age between nine and eleven. Usually, so you know it's not perfect, but it's it's much closer to the intention. Whereas the official English translation has this massive error uh, in it, and it's really annoying uh, because this is the official translation. Fan translations got this right. How come the official translation didn't get this right? And of course, I've talked about the problems with the fact that this is a translated text, and while I do enjoy, for the most part, you know, Sapkowski's prose in translated English, I'm not getting the full experience. There are small little details I'm missing. Play on words I'm missing. Uh, pure mistranslations, as I've pointed out. Jennifer Vergerberg uh, comes to mind. Uh, all the way back in uh, Last Wish, you know, th this is a this is a common problem to the end of the day, and I think that really hurts because these are such good books. But at the end of the day, we're dealing with a book series that is not in, in this language, and thus um, is subject to errors that aren't even the author's fault. And so, at the end of the day, even though I don't do reviews, I just do analyses and general thoughts. You know, someone might come away with negative opinions on those books series not really thinking about the fact that it's not necessarily the author's fault, but the translator's fault. You know? You know, it, it's annoying, but I can deal with it. Um, and I just, retrospectively, in my head, go, well, she's about nine. She was about nine in that conversation. Because that, that, that's part of the point of that, that conversation, was that it's scandalous that this was happening. And uh, outside of the political ramifications, but then he lists them as the same age, so it doesn't work uh, the way it's intended to. The, 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 the commentary doesn't land. But at the end of the day, you know, we make do. Because I love this series and I'll take it in any form I can get it in. As long as it's good. Looking at you, Netflix, and your abomination that you call Witcher. But, uh, now this is a very important chapter for, uh, Yenna's character. Uh, from progressing the, uh, the Trist and Lodge point of view. You know, picking up on the blood oath that Croc had, uh, sworn to Calanthe. And, uh, Yen, you know, uh, sort of, uh, forces him to, um you know, answer the call of this blood oath because she considers Siri her daughter. And it's about motherly love. And at the end of the day, when a literal goddess of motherhood tells you you're worthy, then I think you're worthy. Um, and so anybody that says Yen isn't good enough or whatever, they can go fuck themselves because not only is she wonderful and an amazing character, uh, but throughout these books, she's really proven herself to grow and change and be, you know, a mother, a better mother than her parents were, better mother than Taseya was, to really try and fix a lot of the problems of the past and make amends to herself and to make series life good. So, the great chapter, we're reaching the end of the penultimate book. Uh, though, of course, I, you know, I'll be covering the short story and the prequel uh, after uh, Lady of the Lake. But until then, see you then. Bye. Bye.